0: Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change.
1: Today's guest is Juliet Davenport OBE, CEO of Good Energy PLC. Good Energy is a 100% renewable energy company with a continuing mission to power a greener, cleaner future. Juliet is a trailblazer in so many ways, more than she knows. Firstly, in the creation and supply of local, low-carbon energy. She founded Good Energy at the age of 31 and was the first CEO of a UK energy supplier. She was awarded an OBE in 2013 for services to renewables and was appointed to the Board of Natural Environment Research Council in 2015. She is a climate scientist, renewables pioneer, businesswoman, environmental activist. What Tilly and I love in particular is that she is solutions-focused and a huge supporter of the next generation of leaders. So welcome, Juliet Davenport, CEO of Good Energy, to the Sustainability & You podcast. We're absolutely delighted to have you with us here today. I'm joined by Tilly Wickens as well, our young ambassador.
2: Hello. Hi, Josephine, and thank you so much for inviting me. It sounds like a really interesting chat we're hoping to have.
1: And we wanted to begin the podcast, if that's okay, just by understanding a little bit about the evolution of your career, Juliet. I mean, it's a fascinating
2: story, I know, but we'd love to hear it in your own words. Well, I don't know whether it is that fascinating. it doesn't didn't feel necessarily fascinating at the time, but I guess I guess it started really at university when in the last year of my science degree I did physics at university, I studied atmospheric physics and uh, climate change was obviously part of that. and it kind of started me on a journey and I had no idea how to go on that journey. I mean there was there was no obvious place to go. There wasn't really a climate change industry. Climate change wasn't really a thing in the energy industry at that point. I wasn't ever really gonna make a brilliant research scientist. So that wasn't playing to my strengths. So I kind of did go on a journey at that point and. I spent some time. I spent some time working in a hotel, which is very interesting. You learn a lot of things about yourself and other people if you work in a Caribbean hotel in the middle of nowhere. I then ended up actually doing sports PR for a while, which is also a slightly odd choice. But I learned a huge amount about communication. And and what you have to remember is when you do a physics degree, or when I don't, I, th- I think it's still the same today. But I had probably the longest sentence, the longest amount I'd written was probably a large paragraph by the time I left. So I'd spent probably three years not writing any more than that, which is which is about two inches. I don't think I ever had to speak, actually, to get my degree. Uh, and so you, you have all our common communication skills. Uh, you've had no practice for nearly three years. And so you come out into this outside world, and you have nothing. And so... Actually doing that sports PR, uh, although I have to say a lot of the press releases we wrote about tennis rackets, I still to this day feel slightly embarrassed about, what it did do is give me this amazing grounding in understanding PR, understanding comms and understanding how to tell a story. And I think that was very powerful. I then decided that I kind of, I wasn't satisfied with one degree. I had to have another one. Uh, I, I think sometimes when you're not quite sure where you're going, that that tends to be a path. And in fact, I know it sounds rather bizarre. I don't tell many people this. I I was considering being a dressage rider at that point. So there was a bit of a juxtapoint. Um, And it was quite good because it put me on the spot. Because I kind of always said, oh, maybe I'll do that, maybe I'll do that. And um, somebody offered me an introduction to an amazing dressage um, school. And actually I decided that I wasn't going to do that. And that, that was a good choice. But it's quite interesting to put yourself in a position when you're trying to make a decision to really kind of flush out those decisions and flush out some of those dreams that. Might always just be dreams, but yeah, and it was it was it was quite an interesting point. But I went and did a masters, and as part of that, I went and did an internship in the European Commission, and worked on energy policy, inter- international energy policy, uh, which was amazing because it gave me an understanding of the overall energy system from electricity networks, security supply, oil and gas investment, and renewable investment. So I did the whole piece; I wasn't just on renewables. But that just fundamentally underpinned my understanding of actually how energy markets worked, how um, organizations worked within those markets, and then how government was so fundamental to, to the operation of energy markets. And when I came back from Europe, I had a great time there. I really enjoyed I actually spent six months working on uh, the carbon tax directive as well. Oh, so I kind of I got, I got a kind of whole view of that as well. And I came back to the UK, finished my master's and got a job in consultancy working on renewables, which was really interesting. And I got, that's where I really learned about renewables. I did, we did a study across 30 European countries looking at, I think I spent some time in Portugal, uh, which was fascinating, I understand the Portuguese energy system and the renewables part of it. And... Just went around Europe, seeing different countries, seeing different marketplaces. And off the back of that, I then met an entrepreneur at one of these events. And we were talking about the fact that there was a lot of work with government. There was a lot of work with companies. But consumers had never really been thought of as part of the picture. And if you were thinking really long term, then the only people who use energy are actually the end users. And although you've got all this framework in the middle of government intervention and and big organisations, the actual connecting the power to people was incredibly important. And that's where the idea for Good Energy was born, actually. Um, So that was the eureka moment, was it? It it was the eureka moment. It was over a glass of champagne in Athens (laughs) and with a German entrepreneur. So it was very international at that point. It was really fascinating because I think I think all those pieces that I'd done to that point they were not part of a plan. They had they hadn't just happened. Obviously, I pushed, yeah. but I felt that I learned something from every single part of that.
1: Yes, and you can see how it's come together. You know, the building blocks with all those different experiences. Yeah, are actually coming together to build a very good foundation. Actually, for a business that you didn't know at that point was going to no. come. Through to fruition, um, so you had this idea then to build good energy um, yeah. from from that sort of eureka moment. How did it actually come to being?
2: So the German entrepreneur, uh, sort of Martin, is, is he he raised the money in Germany. And at the time, the European market, the electricity and gas markets were opening up. So there was a piece of legislation going through at European level where you were getting the liberalization of the market. So you were getting competition coming in. The UK was going first. UK government pushed it very hard. It was going first. And so the opportunity, he was interested in the UK because um, we could show a proof of concept for potentially repeating that across Europe. And obviously I was in the UK. So I said, okay, fine, you invest. We'll set up the company. And I was still working for the consultancy at that point. we do it as part of that consultancy. And we we went on a journey to try and get a license to uh, supply electricity in the UK. And it was a fascinating journey because I think we were the second company in the UK to get an electricity license. And we had the most hilarious conversations, which you'd appreciate, which were like, I went to apply for a license. You have to fill out all these forms and show a business plan and all these kind of things. And then at the end, it says the other requirement is three years audited accounts. Now, if you're a startup, obviously you don't have three years. So we had this <laughs> had this catch twenty two conversation that went round and round in a circle. It was just hilarious. Eventually, we had to put a million pounds in a bank account, and they were happy Surety. with that. <laughs> yeah, but it was just like it was. It was quite bizarre. It was. I mean, it's a million miles away from where it is today. So that's that was about pure determination and just keeping going and trying to come up with ways around, around problems, because what else were we meant to do? We, I guess we could have bought a company that had three years' worth of cats, but what's the point? It didn't make any sense. didn't take us anywhere. So, yeah, so that, that was kind of some of the, some of the early teething problem. And then we launched and we launched in 99. And then our parent company probably went into administration, mm. uh, which was <laughs> another, another sort of, interesting time when um you have a business plan that needs a certain amount of investment and then the investor disappears that is quite kind of you were that was i wasn't expecting that to put it that way so at that point uh, we had some angels inv- investor angels in the business already mm-hmm. in the board so we kind of cash flowed it a little bit and then I used to sit next to the call center a lot. Uh, I, well, it was a very small office, so I sat next to the call center. I used to listen. You could hear the calls coming in and you could hear questions coming through. And one of the things that had been consistent from the beginning of the company was that people would ask whether they could invest. They were interested in investing in the business. And so I went to the chairman and said, listen, I think we could raise money from our customer base to do this. And he had some experience of writing prospectuses and selling and buying businesses previously. So between us, we put a prospectus together and essentially did a crowdfund. And I don't think crowdfunding really existed at that point. No, that's very early days. But but again, it was about listening and Mm. not being restricted. I mean, we talked to loads of investors and they weren't interested in a green proposition. I mean, nobody was at that point. But obviously the people who were buying our product were interested. And they were early adopters, so they had a bit of cash, not huge amounts, but a little bit. And so we raised £600,000 in two weeks. That was the kind of seed funding for the business. And actually, has been the backbone of our, of our fundraising ever since, to be honest.
1: I mean, there's two things that strike me here. That I'd really like to explore with you. One is the characteristics it takes to take an idea. Your eureka moment. Take an idea and see it through to fruition. You've clearly got, you know, an innovative uh, character, um, t- tenacious, adaptable, and um, and and dogged. Really, seeing something through from vision to execution, and not afraid to take risk. Yeah. You were thirty-one years old, I read, when you set up Good Energy. I think so. To just to have that sort of foresight.
2: So, shall I tell you? I was I was living at so so where where I was living at the time was quite an interesting place. So, so there was a group of five of us who'd rented this old farmhouse just that side Chippenham, which is where Good Energy is. It was it's a rambling old farmhouse. I dare tell you how many rats it had in it and things like that. But but it but it was a, it was a brilliant place to live because there were at least two other entrepreneurs living there and what what that gave me was a huge confidence but I call it the fuck it moment it's like you kind of go well what's the downside why shouldn't we do this let's try it let's let's get out there and um one of the guys set up a hammock company and he literally he made he personally had a sewing machine he made the hammocks in the kitchen at the time now he now runs a sort of multi-million pound company called Neptune which came out of that kitchen and there was something about that fact that there was I I gained confidence to a certain extent from them as well as kind of my knowledge and everything and it was it was kind of that well why not why not do it why not try because I can go and do other things at the age of 31 it's you've got a lot of avenues to go and do Mm. different jobs you don't have to be on one path and I think I always felt that if the worst comes to the worst, I'll go and live with my parents, which they won't necessarily <laughs> appreciate, but it's a possibility. If the worst comes to the worst, I can go and find another job or I'll go and do something else. So it kind of always felt that that as long as you kind of looked around and said, well, what's the worst thing yeah. that's going to happen? Let's kick on, let's push on and, and see what happens. Because if you don't try, then you won't know what's going to happen.
1: Well, we'll hold on to that because maybe we'll come back to that when we talk about solutions on the race to zero. Yeah. Um, the, other, the other observation, I think, that's, that's really struck me with what you've said is the fact that you grasped very early on in the evolution of this business on the importance of the customer yeah, and the raising awareness in the customer experience and consciousness of the environment and can you say something about that?
2: I think I think what's been really interesting is I think that has got an evolution in the whole industry. But what what I found fascinating was, I mean, the reason I was interested in customer was when having done this piece of work across Europe, we looked at technical potential of renewables, so how windy it was or how sunny it was. We looked at market potential, so we looked at the sort of market structures and the companies and businesses, and we looked at political sort of potential, so what 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 the regulation was doing, etc but nowhere in that study did we look at what consumers were doing actually when you started to go to some of the countries so you went to somewhere like austria where you have a massively decentralized program and actually consumers are part of the solution they become part of the network so you've got a local biomass boiler and um, everybody does a shift to make sure it's working at the mm-hmm. weekends and it's it's a bit like local voluntary firemen you have a local voluntary yeah. biomass boiler maintenance people and so actually the customer and the um and the and the business and the regulation becomes much closer mm. and i think i think it was probably partially from that is that the nature of renewables is decentralized so so with a pipeline you can control the source so if you have if you own the infrastructure and you have the rights of the source at one end you control the other end it's like the tap you control the tap mm. whereas with a solar panel, you cannot control the tap because it's the sun.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so uh, it means that it's a relatively simple technology. OK, it was complex initially, but it is now relatively simple. Everybody, I can I can give both of you a solar panel. You have access to the energy market just by simple, very simple technological translation. And I think that for me was, was the moment looking at how renewables was being put into the european system and how it was affecting the the way we thought about energy from this deeply centralized approach to this decentralized approach and how consumers were then part of that conversation and when i when i started in the energy industry in the uk i mean we we started from that because of that because but i started from that point because i felt that they were the underrepresented and not thought about part of the marketplace and it was completely true because when I joined some of the associations like EUK in the early days. Energy company CEOs would talk about households as meters and that they're in their mindset, you deliver power to a meter, not not even to a customer, really, just to a meter. And what happened on the other side of that meter was irrelevant to you Mm -hmm. because actually there was an assumption that all customers look the same. They all have the same profile. They all use energy at the same time. They, and we all know by being ourselves, is that we're not the same. We are slightly different from each other. And yeah, there may be some trends in what we do, but we we all slightly differ. And I think I think it was that that really uh, that that and that customers never really been engaged or really brought to the front of what we can see uh, in in solutions. And I think we're only beginning to see that now.
1: Yeah. And if you think about, well, I think it makes me think about like the Discocta review and a lot of what, say, Mark Carney said about the alignment of value with values. Yeah. It's about bringing the individual back into the equation, isn't it? Yeah. It's about saying, how do you connect more to your environment or how do you align the decisions that you make more in line with environmental ethics or or, or value imperatives. Yeah. there seems to be this general movement of how do we place the individual at the center of things?
2: Yeah, and and, and it's also about power. I mean, it comes back to that as well. Just i mean, I find—I I had this—I had had a great friend who he worked at the EU at a high diplomatic level, and we were talking about sort of Central and Eastern Europe and and particularly interaction of Russia with some of some of its other neighbours, and when it sw- decides to switch off the gas pipelines on the occasion and stop supplying people. And it, what's fascinating is that you. You could change some of the geopolitics worldwide just by putting a solar panel on every roof in every country. Mm. Suddenly, you wouldn't have power the power politics you see I mean I, I remember the power politics many years ago between Spain and Portugal for example mm. when you s- used to see the fact that one they would uh, there was there, there's a couple of rivers which uh, sort of you can take hydropower from um, and there's always been a debate of where you take the power output whether you take it in Spain or whether you take it in Portugal and you you get to those kind of border controversies mm. and actually you can start to dissipate all of that by empowering customers the end user to be part of this because then countries can't take all the power.
1: Yeah, indeed. And, and I guess um, if we think now we're in the year of COP26, yeah. you're at a critical point in the decision-making um, towards net zero. In your view, what do you think the role of the individual governments, NGOs, scientists, academics are in coming together um, to create solutions around this agenda?
2: And, and specifically, what role will you play in that? So I, I think it's, there's a really interesting sort of overlapping roles between it, sort of all these different parts. And 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 where we run into danger sometimes is when we hand over the tools to the other people to do the work. So um, I, I was once at an event where there was that we just defined that there were kind of four parts of society. One was government, one was academia, one was people, and one was business. That was just a very high level dis- definition. And the question was asked that who is has the responsibility for solving climate change and what was fascinating is everybody went to stood in somebody else's corner <laughs> so right. so that kind of that kind of point of taking personal responsibility or taking responsibility for your sector is that actually we need all of it and so so for me the individual is okay, a
1: twister. <laughs> yeah
2: exactly <laughs> um it, it's it's is the, the, the twister of COP26. <laughs> yes, it's fascinating. Um so so one of the things I find really interesting is that the individual can give the politician the space to make decisions. So politicians don't tend to make decisions without an eye on the populace on on the electorate. And, and if they're getting some very strong signals, either from business actually or from individuals, that this is something that is going to be politically popular, then that really helps them take a much more sort of advanced stance and, and more, more solid stance to making change and I think those those are indicators we we kind of forget and I think was so important in Paris COP because that we saw business really come together and start to have a mantra that that government needed to do something and I feel that government then felt that they had the remit really to go and get on and do it I think the UK government's job right now is to be working internationally. I'm sure they they are already, but it's working on an international stage in every single country, trying to bring forward agreement around what are those countries, what can those countries bring to the table and what's getting in the way of them bringing better targets to the table.
1: And how do you think we balance um, between regulatory drivers and allowing the market to solve the problems of climate change, because it strikes me that the the pace of change will not be sufficient if we just let the market.
2: Oh yeah, no, no, completely. I mean, I think the pace of climate needs four pieces to align, maybe five. The first part is innovation and R and D, and government has a huge role in that. We need to be investing in that now for ten years hence. Um, Because we're going to be doing the stuff that's already in play for the next five to 10 years we'll be implementing. But behind that needs to come the next wave of innovations that we need to see coming through. So that's absolutely key. And right now, to date, for the last 10 years, we haven't spent enough in that area in the UK or worldwide. We need to be we need to be shifting on that. Then you've got infrastructures. So one of the biggest challenges I think we have in this transformation is you've got existing infrastructure in play that was for a high carbon world. Now, some countries have got the advantages. They won't have put all of that infrastructure in play. The developed countries are the ones who've got a bigger challenge on this. So if you've got a national gas natural gas pipeline system that connects 80% of your households like the UK does, yeah. that is a bigger challenge to decarbonize. Than a country that doesn't have that. So I think there are some big challenges in there in terms of how do you deal with existing asset already in play. Then you've got your regulatory part and your market part. Now again, most markets have been devised around a high carbon marketplace, and and definitely Western European and most of Western marketplaces have been centralised as well. So that kind of hugely centralised, hugely um, carb uh, fossil heavy marketplaces. So again, you've got a slightly Work out how do you start to disassemble some of that that has been put in place to do that, and then you've got customer. Now, customer is going to be a much bigger part of this future marketplace, and how do you protect customer as they become an active part? Because today they've been patted on the heads definitely in in, in Western countries, patted on the head. Say, don't worry about it. We'll keep the lights on all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, uh, sort of as soon as they start to become part of this marketplace, they kind of need to understand it and and. And and be protected by people trying to sell them low-carbon products that aren't really low-carbon or, or the whole kind of greenwashing piece. And then finally, people. So this is going to need great leadership. It's going to need great young people to come in and drive this all the way through for the next 10, 20 years. So we need to be thinking about, have they got the right skill sets? Are we thinking about what those leaders need to look like for the future? And, and we're going to have to take some big risks. We are. So, so we need to think about how do we give leaders the capability and not, not hold them back in terms of making some of those big decisions.
1: Yeah. So that's a fantastic framework, isn't it, uh, for us to think about? I mean, in order to
2: execute on that, we need finance. You, you basically don't get finance in any level of that unless, unless you've got all those pieces working. That's why. Yeah.
1: But we need to deploy that, and we need the decision-makers, investors to want to engage with that framework. How do you think we can accelerate that bit even more?
2: So I think, I think um, the whole ESG kind of conversation is really moved forwards. I think, I think we're seeing investors really become a bit more demanding uh, and that really helps. Previously, it's felt like the conversation has been quite lightweight. What we probably need is to support investors to see opportunities. And now investors, to be honest, are pretty good at finding opportunities. I think it's about the seriousness of the regulation to give them confidence that this is where this marketplace is going so that they can start to invest and see the opportunities coming through. I think one of one of the problems we've seen previously is where governments change their mind or take backward steps. Now that's where the regulatory marketplace. So I I believe I believe that markets work really well when businesses can get on and do a brilliant job at being the engine of an economy Mm -hmm. Um, but you need the framework to work properly as well and not get in the way so but you need the framework there in the first place you can't get away with no regulation yeah so you got that kind of balance to to be had and then investors get confidence when they see that framework working yeah and engage with
1: it like through the net zero asset owners alliance and other such initiatives tcfd that's all going to help isn't it the taxonomy really sort of mandating certain things and allowing certain things to be voluntarily engaged with. Um, I mean I'm interested in um in what you think around greenwashing because you you mentioned that <laughs> yes yeah. And I know you've been an advocate uh, obviously on certain aspects of greenwashing as it relates to um
2: the energy markets.
1: The energy markets and articulations of 100 percent renewables yeah. by suppliers. Can you say something about that?
2: yeah i mean i think from our point of view what we've seen is we've seen a kind of regulatory loophole that's allowed people to make claims which we think is misleading to consumers so because they've been able to buy certificates to green up power Mm. customers think that that means that they buy that power which they don't there's the, the claims that there's a finance mechanism through buying certificates isn't enough because actually 99% of the income comes from the power purchase of, of new sites. And if you're going to build more renewables, you need the power to be purchased, not the certificates to be purchased, as we've moved into the unsubsidized world. And that subtlety is where we need to look after consumers. Because consumers are not going to know whether they can ask that question or not they're kind of trusting the regulation to protect them even though there's there's a there's a subtle angle in there which i don't think it is i think it's the same in investment i think we need some criteria uh, by which claims if people make claims there are some benchmarks there are some auditing processes there's some transparency about about actually what what the claims are and i mean that's one of the reasons we we've spent i mean We've always had an external environmental audit done on our business because I always wanted an external view that I can say, look, this is what we said we did. And this is how we proved what we said we did. Um, And I I think it would be quite simple personally just to I mean, you're already beginning to see it come through in audit requirements that um, directors are going to have to say how they're making sure their companies are ready for climate change and moving towards mitigation on climate change. I think that's a really important step and sometimes these small steps that are, is yeah. written in the small small print actually can make the biggest differences.
1: Yeah. And that path to full and fair disclosure and transparency seems very clear now. Yes. So you know picking away at the greenwashing I think is a very clear and positive pathway isn't it to informing the customer.
2: Yes, the CMA in the UK as well. So the Competition Market Authority is looking at this. And I think it's really important. Because the last thing you want to do is undermine this whole marketplace because yes. of some bad decisions. Yeah. Um, and and for me, this is one area you don't take risk.
0: Do you think that kind of uh, increasing involvement of the CMA is encouraging more education in that regard then? Because I'm interested on your, you keep coming back to the customer and the consumer. And I think it it's such a, an interesting perspective to take. And I think not usually taken. And I'm wondering how much awareness there is actually, and how we can increase that awareness. Also, because I was thinking what you were saying about the interest in investment, when you were saying that you used to sit next to the call center. And I wonder if that interest in investment is the same, if not more in other energy companies, purely based on misinformation could be i mean it's it's very difficult to tell because that kind of
2: information that you get that feedback you get from customers in the moment i believe is very powerful it, it's it it's not the same as writing a survey it's because somebody's positively volunteered that they want to do something whether that investment angles in other businesses it could well be and i think i think we might have seen a bit of evidence of where customers think they've got something and actually that that money's going somewhere else and i think that that Getting that transparency, I think, as you said, is really important. And the more transparency we can make um, to make sure where people are putting their money or where people are buying their goods is what they truly believe it is. So I, I do think that's really important. I think getting the CMA involved, I, I think that will help educate the regulators and, and government. And I think, again, that's really important because they've slightly taken the angle that the consumers aren't exp- aren't complaining so there's not a problem but the issue is the consumer isn't always aware that there's something to complain about because how would you know if you were being greenwashed unless you you spend a lot of time really understanding the legislation and why somebody can say this and why they can't say this and that's asking everybody every consumer to become a specialist in this area which is for me that's what consumer protection is all about
1: yeah. Well, one of the other pillars that you talked about, um, Juliet, was was encouraging the next generation of, of leaders. And this is where I'd like to pull you in again, Tilly. Um, how do we encourage the next generation of voices to to participate in a real way uh, in policymaking, decision making? Because they're inheriting those decisions, so their voices need to be heard.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a real challenge. We, for quite some time, have tried to think about stakeholders and four senses. So we've always have, obviously had shareholders. Mm-hmm. We've always had customer. We've always had our people internally. We also created something called a future holder with the concept that that was actually trying to think of the things that didn't exist today and, and who was going to exist tomorrow. And to a certain extent, we've taken that to another level. So we've just, we're just in the process of appointing a youth board which is school-aged um, sort of children coming to talk to about us, about what they believe the future looks like. They've got they're going to have engagement with our board directly. They're also going to integrate with the company. And what we hope we can give them is some insight in terms of how companies work, because I think one of the things that we can give uh, younger people is the tools to understand how organizations work and then how they can affect change. Because I, I don't know about you, but when you first start on a journey as a young person, it's quite difficult to figure out how things work and how to get things done and how to influence things. And, and you can see that I've done it by just pure sort of force of personality. But mm. um, I think that's that's not everybody wants to do it in the same way. And so giving people the tools to say, well, have you thought about if you want to push this idea forward why don't you go and see whether there's any other funding sources that you could find to take that, and then put a proposal together, and then this is what it looks like. and And how do you? It's quite interesting. Quite often, you find young people want permission to do things, and sometimes you kind of need to take the initiative and and ask for permission, but but go on a journey before you've asked for the total permission.
1: But it comes back to your starting point about being brave and bold. You've got mm-hmm. resilience and tenacity. Drawing that out of an individual very early on in their career strikes me as a very necessary thing in order to create the change that we want to see and to encourage people to be innovative.
2: Yes. And, And I think also giving them the skills to talk about what they want to do. So those communication skills are incredibly powerful in terms of being able to explain their ideas and influence people. When, one of the best courses I ever did, I, I Bayes ran a course called How Do You Influence When You Have No Influence? And it's and, and what it's talking about is that you have no influence within the, the pure hi- hierarchy or structure of an organization, but that doesn't mean you have no influence. Yeah. And I think sometimes we we take our roles as as confined to what we think is in our job description, but that's not the case. I think we should, we should, as leaders, we should be encouraging younger people to kind of go across, to build networks within their own organisations, to influence each other, and come together as a group that doesn't necessarily fit in a normal hierarchy.
0: I think that's a really interesting point, actually, and particularly from a young woman's perspective. I think you are such a rare breed in the kind of Um, journey that you've taken and I'm really interested to hear what kind of advice you would have for a young woman actually stepping out in a similar because I think a lot of that kind of need for permission particularly falls on young women and I'm interested to see yeah I mean, it clearly, I'm not sure how much it affected you. You have seemed to <laughs> manage to step over those obstacles quite well. But I'm wondering if you had any advice, actually, for other young women who would be interested in stepping into your shoes effectively.
2: I think definitely trying to figure out whether you have somebody else to talk to whether you've got a peer within the existing organisation you're in or somebody that you can make a connection to. I mean, I'm still always slightly amazed that I managed to get an internship in the commission because basically what you had to do is get a phone book People you've never met and ring them up and persuade them to meet you and turn up in Brussels and hope they would meet you. And it was it was hilarious. I mean, I I, I look back and I go, oh my God, I'm not sure I could do that now. But but it but it is it is about sort of thinking about what's the worst thing that can happen in some of the situations. But I but if you can find peers of yours who you can talk to or at least debate some of these things with and build your confidence around that as well. I think also there's some fantastic organizations. There's there's some of the institutes that are, uh, that have I uh, mean I know in I'm I'm vice president of something called the Energy Institute which is about again it has a whole youth part of that has a young people's approach it's trying to bring people cross sectional so they can talk to each other and particularly diversity issue to on that is really powerful so I think trying to see where whether there's other organisations you can join who you might find like minded people because. Part of it is building your own confidence of having a conversation offline almost. And when and, and trying to do that in a wider meeting sense is not necessarily the best place to do it. I think you need to test and learn um, in terms of what you're thinking and what you're saying and whether it resonates with anybody else and, and then build off that. Um, w- one example, I, I sat, in, sat on a council for something and um, had a particular problem with one of the papers that had been produced. And I kind of looked at it and went, OK, I could just say this in the meeting, but I've got no idea what anybody else thinks. I've got no idea whether they support me and I've got no idea how it'll land. And so instead, what I did was I went and talked to a couple of people who, who, were on the, who were on the council as well and got their opinion. And I told them what my concern was. And, and some of them expressed that, yeah, they were a bit worried about it as well, which meant that I then brought it up and then they backed it up at the meeting, which meant it then got reviewed. And so I think you just you just need to sometimes build a little bit of uh, support around you with some some of these changes, and you don't have to do it all on your own. You do have to pick the people. You might find that some people won't help you, and that's just a learning curve. But you will find some people who who will support you, uh, whether that's at the same level as you or a level above. Pick up the phone and talk to people. I think it's I think it's much more powerful than. And I don't think I did enough of that at the beginning. But I definitely learned over the time that that's, that's a really powerful way of helping yourself. So what's next for you, Juliette? So, so right now, I'm kind of slightly taking a little bit of a step back to kind of really figure out what I do want to do next. I've had lots of fantastic kind of ideas and thoughts thrown at me. Um, and, and where I'm beginning to get to is that the, the pieces that I really want to be involved in is transformation. So that is about tran- either transforming organizations or transforming industries. Where those industries want to go from one place to another, because I think that's what what I'm conscious of is that's what I've done all my life. And steady state is not what I'm really that interested in. Making change is what I'm interested in. Also, energy is is going to be my mainstay because it is for me the most fascinating part of our lives. In that it underpins our economies worldwide, underpins most of what happens in politics internationally. Um, It's hugely important environmentally and hugely important socially. So for me, it's just such an extraordinary industry that can do good or bad. And I kind of hope I can be part of making sure it does the former.
1: Well, we wish you all the very best in those next steps. I can't wait to see what you do thank you so much for your time today we really appreciate it um, I wish we had uh, a few more hours to pick <laughs> your brains uh, but
2: but we'll we'll let you go but thank you so much Juliet
0: thank you Juliet thank you
2: Josephine thank you Tilly really lovely to talk to both of you